Well, good evening. It's a distinct privilege to be with you, to see a few familiar faces, uh, but also some new faces, and to be able to worship with you, to sing with you, to pray with you, and now to consider God's word together. If you have a copy of the scriptures nearby, you might turn to Psalm 126. And as you're turning there, it's maybe helpful to have a few words of introduction that'll simply echo some of what we heard in this, in this previous prayer. Psalm 126 is in a portion of the Psalms, a group of 15 Psalms that all have the same title, a song of ascents. It seems as if these were Psalms that the Israelites sang as they were traveling to the holy city for feasts and festivals. This was if you will, their playlist as they journeyed to that city. And these songs are all an exercise in remembering. They say something about what the Lord has done and who he is for his people. As they're traveling and leaving behind their homes and their businesses, they're reminded that all they have comes from God and that all their hope is in him. He's the one who protects them. The Lord protects them and he gives to them. And this particular psalm, Psalm 126, reminds them that the Lord is the one who restores. He brings restoration to his people. So it's helpful for us even in thinking about that in the context of these psalms to ask the question, what does this psalm have to do with us? If these were songs that the Israelites sang as they went to festivals and feasts that we no longer celebrate... What does it mean for us? And in that context, it's helpful to remember that these are not just the Psalms for Israel, but these are the Psalms for the church. They're Psalms for us, and they're Psalms for you. And as we read and consider this Psalm, it's a reminder that that same God for Israel is our God who restores and protects us until we find ourselves in his presence as we look on the face of Jesus. So let's keep that in mind as we hear these words. Psalm 126, a song of ascent. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Everyone loves a comeback story. When someone or a collection of someone seems as if their cause is ruined, that they've come to the end of any expectation or hope, and yet suddenly, victory is grabbed from the jaws of defeat. We love those stories. We have them in history and people like Winston Churchill, who uh, was uh, ascended to a position of leadership and helped lead his nation through a great war and then was tossed from office 
only to be asked to return again in a time of great crisis. We know it in our own nation's history. President Harry S. Truman, who went to bed thinking he'd lost his re-election and woke up in the morning finding out he'd won, and we have those pictures of him with a big cheesy grin on his face holding up a newspaper that said, Dewey defeats Truman. We have them in sports as well, things like the 2004 American League Championship Series when the Red Sox were down 3-0, to zero, and it seemed as if all hope was lost, and yet they go on to win the series and win the World Series. And whether you're a fan or an athlete in the midst of that moment, or whether you're just watching them, you can imagine what's going through their head. Can this be real? Did this really just happen, or is this all just a dream? The reality seems too good to be true. Psalm 126 begins with that kind of raw emotion. A reversal of fortune so great and so wonderful that those who receive its benefit are saying, is it just a dream? Can this really be true? Psalm 126 looks back to a time when God poured out his blessings and his restoring grace in such marvelous quantities that the only reasonable response was fits of laughter and shouts of joy. The reversal was so great that that's all they could do. And that memory in Psalm 126 gives the basis for reflecting on biblical truths of God's goodness. The Lord is the one who has restored, the Lord is the one who continues to restore, and He's the one who will finally and fully restore His people to Himself. And that memory provokes a response of praise and prayer and confident joy. And it provides for us instruction as we we respond to the goodness of God. Psalm 126 calls us to respond in at least three ways to the grace of of God in Christ. First of all, to praise the Lord for past restoration. Second, to pray to the Lord for present and ongoing restoration. And then finally, to rest in the Lord's promise of future, full, and final restoration. So first of all, this psalm calls us to give praise to God, to praise the Lord for past restoration. Look again there at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. The focus of the psalm is of God's restoring power and the exuberant joy that fills the people of God as they consider his kindness. We see that right away in verse 1. But it's important for us to understand that even as we hear of this kind, this restoring grace, that restoration, first of all, points us to loss, something that must be restored, something that was lost but now regained. This psalm remembers a time in the history of Israel that was characterized by great suffering. The whole of the psalm reminds us, in fact, of the tension of the Christian life, that the Christian life is not simply victory upon victory, but that the Christian life is filled with tears and toil. And that's 
a present reality. It's not just a past reality. It's our present reality and even our future reality as we walk on this trail toward heaven. Even the laughter of verse 2 suggests a harder time. A time when it seemed as if we might never laugh again. We might never smile again. A time when it seemed as if all was lost. It's good for us that the Psalms speak of those times. That they don't hesitate to remember the difficult times and the suffering and sorrow that belongs even to the people of God. When the Psalms speak in this way, by not ignoring suffering, but acknowledging the difficulty of this life, it reminds us who God is. That our God is the God who cares for those who suffer. That He mourns with those who mourn. That He's a God who cares for the weak and the poor and the oppressed, and He promises to comfort them. He's a God who honors, who hears, who inclines his ear to the lament of his people. And that's what we see here at the beginning of this psalm. He's a God who restores those who are suffering. The the memory that's recorded in verse 1 is rooted in great tragedy. In fact, John Calvin, in writing about this psalm, says with great confidence, a confidence that I I can't share with him, but a confidence that he expresses that this must have been written in response to the Babylonian captivity because there's suffering that great expressed in this psalm. But that's also something of the beauty of the psalms is that we don't have to know the context in which the psalm was written because it's a psalm for us in all the times when we suffer and when we're discouraged. And it points us to the one who delivers us from all the captivity that would weigh us down and cause us discouragement, to the one who frees us from the enslavement of sin, who frees us from the power of death, and who brings us into the freedom of our God. It points us to Christ. Charles Spurgeon wrote a short poem about this particular section of Psalm 126, and it simply goes like this. When God revealed His gracious name and changed our mournful state, our rapture seemed a pleasing dream. The grace appeared so great. This psalm reminds us that God loved us, that He gave His Son for us, that He saved us and delivered us and forgave us through the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it calls us to respond in praise, rejoicing in the goodness of God. It it even reflects the amazement that we have sometimes at the grace of God, that the questions that we ask, could the infinite and eternal and holy God love me in this way? And the answer is yes. He's loved me in that way in His Son. And it calls us then to respond in praise and thanksgiving to God. This reversal of fortune, the the promise that the Lord is the one who delivers and who has delivered, who continues to rescue and restore us, calls for a response. And that's what we see in verse 2. It says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. This is a psalm of exuberant joy, of celebration. It's a psalm 
that's sung by those who before weren't sure if they would smile or be able to laugh ever again, but now are so uh, thankful for the goodness of God that they're overcome with laughter. They almost can't stop laughing. And they're filled with songs of joy, even shouts of joy. It's a response that's loud and boisterous because our God is good and he's worthy of our praise. Martin Luther, in reflecting on this, said something like this. He said, the gospel is nothing else but laughter and joy. Maybe a slight overstatement. But there's some truth there, isn't it? The gospel is nothing else but laughter and joy. And here's what Calvin said in response to verse 2 of Psalm 126. He says that this psalm describes no ordinary rejoicing, but such as so fills their minds as to constrain them to break forth into extravagance of gesture and of voice. Seems as if John Calvin might be calling us to raise our hands and praise to God because our God is that good and his salvation is that great. We have reason, don't we, to laugh and sing and shout for joy to the Lord. We shouldn't be restrained in our rejoicing. I remember sitting with my family once in worship and there was something in the sermon that struck me in such a way that I responded with a pretty loud amen and my teenage daughter nudged me and said, Dad, be quiet, you're embarrassing us. (laughs) But God's that good, isn't he? That sometimes all we can do is sing and shout and praise to him because of the great salvation that he has for us in Christ. So it calls for a response from those who've been restored. But did you notice as well that there's a response from the nations? Our mouth was filled with laughter. Our tongue was shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. These are, in this context, the Gentile nations, the the world who does not know God or his salvation. And yet there are times in the history of the people of God when the restoration is so great and their praise so loud that the nations stop to take notice. In fact, that's part of our witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We respond in praise to God for what he's done for us in Christ. The nations respond and say the Lord has done great things for them. And then we can say in response, as we see in this psalm, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. And of course, on this side of the cross, the Gentile nations join the people of Israel in singing praise to God. Because of what God has done for us in Christ, the nations no longer have to say the Lord has done great things for them, but they can say with Israel, the Lord has done great things for us so that all of us are glad. It's maybe a good time to stop and ask at least this question that we must all answer for ourselves. Has God done that good work in you? Do you say with the Gentile nations in Psalm 126, the Lord has done great things for them? Or can you say with confidence, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad? Don't wait to know the goodness of God. Respond in faith, believing his promises so that you can say 
with the people of God. The Lord has done great things for us. So it's first of all a call to praise God for past restoration. But the psalm moves on to a prayer to pray to the Lord for current and present restoration. Verse 4 is almost an echo of verse 1. Verse 1 begins by rejoicing when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. But verse 4 then turns that song of praise into a prayer. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The memory becomes a prayer. The psalmist doesn't merely rest in the past. This isn't a nostalgic memory of the good old days, but that remembering of the past is a springboard that calls the people of God to continually cry out to the unchanging God to restore us each and every day. Because, friends, that's what we need. We're in need of constant restoration We need to be continually restored again and again. We're in need of spiritual strength each and every day. And God promises to give it. The God who began a good work in us promises to bring it to completion at the day of Christ's return. But this psalm gives us a pattern to both remember what the Lord has done in restoring us and then pray for continual ongoing Restoration, And then to fill out that prayer, he gives us two images, two illustrations of God's restoring power. They're vis- visceral images, but they're also complementary. They give two descriptions of two different ways that the Lord continues to restore his people. We see the first image in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, the images of a dry desert in the midst of a summer drought. There are channels where water used to run, but they're dry and hard and cracked. Have you seen what happens in a desert when torrential rains come? Quickly, almost overnight, there's new grass and flowers and color and life. The desert becomes a garden. This image is reminding us of the delightful suddenness of God's refreshing grace as he gives us words in the midst of spiritual drought and thirst. Maybe you remember times when you've been there in the midst of spiritual drought. Maybe some of us are there today wondering If God can hear us, reflecting on the fact that color and life and vibrancy in my spiritual life is gone. I'm thirsty and I need something to drink. But every time it seems like there's water for my soul, it turns out to be a mirage. That's part of the image and the promise of verse 4 is that God in the midst of such spiritual drought is Rejoicing in the opportunity to send you cooling rains, life-giving streams. He encourages us to pray for that very thing, and it's a prayer that he loves to answer. You ever received an answer to that kind of prayer in the midst of drought and difficulty? Maybe it's a sermon in just one sentence that awakens your soul to the goodness of God. 
or a hymn or a song that someone else is singing and one particular phrase awakens you to God's kindness or a steadfast friend who the Lord sends to speak exactly the right word at exactly the right time or a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset that reminds you of God's grace and mercy. This is how the Lord works in our lives. And it's helpful even in considering this image to remember the context of this song. This is what they were singing as they prepared to enter the city to worship God. Maybe you can remember an experience where on a Sunday morning you were preparing to go to church and you wondered, should I even bother? It seems as if the Lord has stopped speaking to me. And you should bother. You should come. Because the Lord promises to put a new song in your mouth. And he gives you words to sing. A prayer to him who always promises to answer. So first of all, we see the way that the Lord sometimes suddenly awakens us to his grace and to his mercy. But verse 5 gives us a very different image. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He points us to the farmer. Slow and steady labor. Arduous labor. Tear-filled, sweat-laden labor. Joys that are hard-won and long-awaited. Farming is an exercise and an expression of faith. The farmer prepares the soil. He places the seed. And then much of the rest is out of his control. He labors and he works and he prays and he waits patiently to see what the Lord might do. Sounds like the Christian life, doesn't it? A careful, patient toil over God's word, reflecting on his promises, struggling against sin that so easily entangles and doing all of that labor sometimes with tears as we struggle to live the Christian life in a broken world with our own brokenness often getting in our way. The Christian life is a hard reality filled with disappointments and suffering and sweat and tears. And yet we do so with confidence, with faith-filled expectation of a spiritual harvest even in our own souls, with the promise that as we, as we sow in tears that we will reap with joy. That's a promise to God's people. It's the pattern of God's spiritual harvest even in our own lives. And it's a pattern of God's spiritual harvest in the souls of others. That pattern, that slow, patient, prayerful struggle reminds us of who we are. We're weak. And without Christ, we're lost. And we struggle against sin each and every day. But it reminds us also of who God is. He's a powerful, saving, restoring God. And it reminds us to pray. 
to pray in faith for his restoring power today and every day. So this psalm calls us to praise the Lord for past restoration. It calls us to pray to the Lord for ongoing restoration. But lastly, it calls us to rest in the Lord's promise of future, full, and final restoration. It's probably helpful for us to remember that sowing in tears is probably not a great marketing message in the eyes of the world. Not many people are excited to sow in tears. And yet that sowing comes with a promise that even in the midst of tears, we know that there is joyful reaping in our future. When we embrace the restorative pattern of this passage, we embrace as well this, the certainty of the promise that he gives us. Those who sow in tears shall reap, shall come home with shouts of joy. And the certainty is made clear to us in at least two ways and at the end of this psalm. First of all, the language points us to a certain promise. It says in our translation, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It could actually say something like this. Those who surely go out weeping and sowing shall surely come home with shouts of joy. It's not a possibility. It's a promise. It's a certainty that if we sow in faith, we shall reap in joy. It's something that God says he will do. And when God says it, he always does it. And so we can know with certainty that tears are followed by rejoicing. That the Lord who has restored us is the Lord who continues to restore us. And the Lord who will once and finally and fully restore us. That's a promise. You can bank on it. The Lord will do it. But there's another thing in this psalm that points to the certainty of the promise. And it's what we find in verse 6. There's a small but significant transition that happens in verse 6. Maybe you noticed it when we read through the psalm. All the pronouns in verses 1 through 5 are plural. We, our, them, us, and those. But then notice what it says in verse 6. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Why does it change? Some argue that the psalmist is making it personal. We know there's a corporate promise of restoration, but this is reminding you that the promise is for you as, and for all those who trust in God and in his salvation. And there's maybe something to it, but I think there's something more going on. The psalm seems to have a particular he in mind, a greater, a better harvester. The pattern of the spiritual harvest in Psalm 126 points us to the mold of our harvesting Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says of himself in John chapter 12. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He goes on to describe that hour of which he speaks as the hour of his glory, the hour of his being lifted up on the cross. And he says, and when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus, our Savior, willingly 
and forcibly embraced the harvest pattern of Psalm 126. And he did so because it's his pattern. It's his way. He sowed in tears in his humiliation. He was born in human flesh. He was made under the law. He endured the miseries and humiliations of this life. He bore the wrath of God for the sins of others. He endured the cursed death of the cross. He was buried and continued under the power of death for a time. He sowed in tears. But he also reaped with shouts of joy in his exaltation. He was raised from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven where he took his seat at the right hand of God, and he's coming again to judge the world at the last day. And for the glory of God and for the good of his people, he did all of this. He did this for you. If you trust and rest in him so that he shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And brothers and sisters know that if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in him and in the power of his death and resurrection to save you, you're his sheaves. He's bringing you home and this he will surely do. And this he has done for you by his death and resurrection. The pattern of the harvest, the pattern of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the very thing that Psalm 126 points us to. And by faith in him, he invites you to join him, both to rejoice in this pattern of life by which he will bring you into his glory, but also to live the rest of your life in that same pattern. I want us to just think about two ways as we come to a close of how we embrace the pattern of God's harvest. First of all, we embrace it by faith in his promises. You can know that by being joined to Christ in faith, the certainty of this promise is yours. There's no doubt that if you are in Christ, he will bring you home with him. And so you can rejoice even today as you look forward to that day when all suffering is gone, every tear is wiped away, and you enter into the presence of your Savior. William Barclay, in, uh, in considering this psalm, wrote this poem that ties Jesus directly to the promises of Psalm 126. It goes like this. So came Messiah, friend of men, a man of sorrows he, to fight with grief and tears and pain that we might conquerors be. Behold, he comes the second time to wipe away our tears and takes us up along with him for everlasting years. And so we can continue in faith through the struggles of this life, trusting and looking to Jesus, who will one day wipe away all tears from our eyes. But secondly, we embrace the pattern of the harvest as we enter into the harvest fields with the whole church. The Lord promised his people that the fields are white and ready for harvest, and he sends us into the fields with great promises. And as we go into those fields, we know that we do so with tears, that the struggle of carrying the gospel to those who have not yet believed is a difficult struggle, often discouraging. And sometimes with tears, we weep over those who we love, who do not respond in faith. And yet that's exactly how we're called to go. Charles Spurgeon, in writing about this psalm and what it means to sow in tears as we take the gospel to the nations, wrote these words. When a man's heart is so stirred that he weeps over the sins of others, 
He is elect to usefulness. Winners of souls are first weepers for souls. May the Lord do that work of faith in us, that we can turn to him with confidence, knowing that even as we struggle through the toils and tears of this life, we know with confidence that we will one day stand in the presence of our Savior. And may that hope cause us to go out into the fields with tears and with joy, knowing that our Savior will bring all of his people home as he carries his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the glorious promise of the gospel that we see even on display in this psalm. We're coming, Lord, rejoicing in our Savior who did embrace this pattern, who modeled it for us in his death and resurrection. We come, Lord, rejoicing in the promise of restoration that's ours in Jesus and asking, Lord, that you'd strengthen us to believe your promises and to keep your commandments. We pray this in the good name of our Savior. Amen. Well, we have been richly fed today. Amen? Wow. Thank you, brothers. Let's, um, let's respond by singing God's word back to him. We'll sing this song, 126a, When Zion's Fortunes God Restored. Let's stand together as we sing, 126a.